As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And today we wanted to begin a series on the show talking about the telephone game. Many of you probably already know the general contours of a telephone game, but just in case anybody escaped childhood without playing this, uh, I'm going to describe how it often goes. So you might gather all the players in the room and arrange them in a line or in a big circle. We always played it in a circle at my elementary school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You played it in a circle, too? Yeah, yeah. And I was about to say very much an elementary school sort of game. Uh, This would be where, where I remember playing it from. So you begin with a secret message. I think maybe often a teacher came up with the message, but uh, I guess a kid could too. The main thing is not everybody gets to hear it at the beginning. Uh, The message can be of varying lengths or genres. Usually it was like a phrase or a sentence length. And for the purpose of some of the experiments we're going to look at later in this episode, it it tends to get longer. It's like a full narrative length. uh, And that's where you can start really seeing interesting things about how uh, messages change uh, across generations of retelling. But for the purpose of the kids game, yeah, it's often like a sentence. So l- let's say the phrase uh, for our example is this sentence. He learned almost too late that man is a feeling creature and because of it, the greatest in the universe. So somebody takes that message, they whisper it into the ear of the first player in the line, and then that player turns and whispers it back from memory as best they can to the next player, and then on down the line it goes. So each player is hearing what the other player's impression of the message was. And when it gets to the end, you reveal two things to the whole group, what the original message was and what final message emerged from the chain of players. Now, if you played this game with the man is a feeling creature message uh, and you played it with like a group of, I don't know, 20 elementary school kids, I would imagine you'd end up with something radically different at the end. 
than what you started with. Uh, maybe something about uh, peeling potatoes. And then probably also, to be honest, if, if I remember how this went with kids, something about like uh, it might end with the phrase and his head was made of poo poo or something. Yeah, yeah, because any any group of school kids, you're going to have some conscientious uh, kids in there that are trying to uh, contain and accurately reproduce the message. But you're also going to have some distracted kids and you're going to have some troublemakers. But hey, hats off to the troublemakers, because in this case, I you know, introducing weirdness to the message on purpose is half of the game. So th- there are several different ways that I think changes to the message are usually introduced in, in this form of the game, you know, whispering ear to ear among school kids. Number one is errors of hearing or speaking. So you might mistake a word in the message for a sound-alike word, like a man is a feeling creature might turn into something about peeling, and then that could be confusing, and then something about peeling potatoes, you know, on down the line. Um, You could, of course, have errors of memory, forgetting what the second half of the sentence is, or forgetting particular word choices you know, transforming a phrase into a kind of rough gist of the phrase instead of getting the words right. And then finally, you just have deliberate changes. And concerning those deliberate changes, I think it's important to point out that ostensibly the purpose of the game is to see if you can preserve the message intact. But a lot of children playing lose sight of this goal and instead play with the goal of introducing the funniest or most entertaining variations on the original message. Uh, Because after all, if you are playing in order to preserve the message as best you can, the, the sort of win condition, the optimal outcome is also the most boring outcome. It's like, oh, wow, it stayed the same the whole way around. OK, <laughs> uh, but the more catastrophic your failure, the more entertaining the game becomes. Yeah. And a lot of this comes back to the fact that children generally have a very unbalanced and and uh, honestly developing sense of humor. Um, they don't realize that the true humor of the game comes out of an organic attempt to accurately reproduce the data um, and that if you were to intentionally tweak it for entertainment's sake, you would have to do so with care because if it drifts too far, if at the end it just becomes this um, this, 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 this spill of, uh, of, uh, of childhood obscenities, then it, it's, it's not funny. It's, it's meaningless, but it's still probably going to end in laughter for these children. I mean, they're the audience after all. Yeah, I think genuine mistaken nonsense is the more deeply satisfying form of comedy than, you know, tacking on his head was made of poo-poo to the end of the sentence. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you're a kid, you can't really resist. Right. So I was thinking about, you know, my memories of of playing this game. And we, we did play this game at my elementary school. And I was kind of wondering why we played it as children. I assume it was to teach us not to believe everything we hear, to give a kind of stern example about the pernicious power of rumors. But in in my experience, kids always quickly figure out that the real point of the game is, like we said, to change the message on purpose to be more entertaining or usually to be, you know, more nonsensical or more scatological. The game works very differently if everyone isn't committed to trying to preserve the message intact. But then again, I guess you could say that even with people throwing scatological nonsense in the gears just for fun, it still sort of works as a lesson about the real-world fallibility of uh, word-of-mouth transmission chains because, 
you know, the same thing happens there, really, in, in a less obvious and less immediate form. But when people retell a story or a rumor about their classmates, they also will often introduce details in order to make it more entertaining in their view on the retelling. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to say that I don't remember any kind of lessons attached to be, being made to play this game in like elementary school or what have you. It was just kind of like, this is what we're doing. We're about to kill some time with a fun game. And, uh, you know, and then the game, of course, uh, just descends into nonsense and, uh, and childhood laughter. And then at some point, the uh, the adults uh, that are carrying this out realize that it's gone too far and we need to get these kids involved in something else. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, uh, as as we'll be discussing uh, on the show here, like there, there are a lot of different ways you can you can crack this nut, a lot of different ways you can think about it. And uh, I, I I'll say the other thing that comes to mind is that I can't help but make this connection between this game and humor based on intentionally mishearing something. Mm, um, yeah, this was really big in my family to the point that I think it was a, a bit overdone and and got a little annoying at times. Um, and I don't know if that was us or if that, for all I know, maybe it was fueled by everyone having played the telephone game in school. Like maybe it teaches you that, hey, if you slightly mishear something, it becomes more fun. Um, and you can just sort of revel in that, uh, you know, and why save the world when you can save the squirrel? Ha, it's instantly funny. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it easily gets out of hand if you just keep going back to that well. Well, it's a common genre of joke on Mystery Science Theater 3000 to uh, take a kind of mumbled, hard-to-hear line and say, wait a minute, what did he say about cheese? Yeah, I mean, it's a great way to just tweak something a little bit, create something that's minimally counterintuitive, something that um, uh, has just the right level of absurd, again, assuming a child is not um, you know, doing this just willy-nilly, um, just drive things a little bit off the road into the realm of humor. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an easy way to get there. For other variations on the basic idea of the game, I was looking around and I came across uh, one thing I'd never played or even heard of before, but there is uh, apparently a variation called, uh, apologies for the name of this, I don't know where this comes from, but it is called Eat Poop You Cat. And it's the same as the telephone game, except you play it on a piece of paper and it each stage of transmission, you alternate back and forth between text and drawing, which I think is a fantastic idea. So for you start with the text message, the first person has to represent that as a picture. And then the next person has to translate that picture into text, and then back to a picture, then back to text and so on. And so I think in that format, especially because at the end, you have a uh, you have a written document of each stage of transmission that everybody can inspect and enjoy it. it that sounds like a, a much more satisfying version of the game. Yeah, I agree. Terrible title that makes it um, a, a little difficult to, to research online. But um, yeah, I'd not heard of this one. Uh, yeah, same concept, except going back and forth between drawings and written uh, sentences rather than depending on a chain of whispers. Not sure about its origins, but I did notice that it's listed on uh, Board Game Geeks uh, due to its popularity as a party game, but not because it's like a typical like board game or card game or something of that nature. It's just like a party game, a parlor game, uh, and, and seems to be popular, though I'd never heard of it before. Now, there are a lot of additional alternate names for the telephone game. In fact, some of you might have gone into this episode wondering, well, what is the telephone game? What are they talking about? Um, a lot of the names for what we're talking about here do and seem to involve the technological metaphor of the telephone. 
though at this point, I guess it's increasingly an outdated metaphor, um, an outdated reference. We might need to explain what a telephone is because we're not talking about a, a tiny pocket computer. We're talking about ultimately um, allusions to like mid 20th century telephones. Uh, one of the early sources that uh, I was reading about a version of this game, which I'll get into later in this episode, referred to it as a variation on the, quote, Russian scandal. I'd never heard of that name. Yeah, I'll come back to that in just a minute. Um, there are still other names that invoke snail mail, just traditional mail, gossip, or listening. Though there is one major uh, name for this, alternate name for it, that's worth mentioning because it actually is the primary name for this game in many areas. In fact, if you look up the telephone game, say just a quick Google search or something, you will find that, say, the, the Wikipedia article, for example, is not about the telephone game. That is not the title of the entry. The title of the entry is Chinese Whispers. Now, I have to admit that, yeah, I'd never heard of Chinese Whispers. I'd only heard of the telephone game. Yeah, uh, and I was here. a bit... And I was a bit surprised and a bit worried when I saw that in the United Kingdom, in Australia, and in New Zealand, this is the primary name for it. And I was afraid that there was going to be something at least xenophobic in the tradition here. And it, it, it's interesting that it's not an antiquated name for the game in these regions as well. For, for instance, there are plenty of academic papers that I ran across from 2023 even that use this terminology uh, where it's sometimes dealt with directly as a concept. Uh, like some of the papers we'll be referring to in a bit, and other times it's used as a metaphor for something or just a snappy title. Now, what does this mean? Where does it come from? Well, the primary explanations I've run across focus on the idea of it being a mashup of whispers themselves being difficult to understand. Again, that's how the game kind of works. And this idea of the Chinese language being, from a Western standpoint, um, arguably difficult a difficult language to learn. However, I've also seen sources acknowledge that this could at least be misinterpreted as referring to Chinese as a language that is pure confusion or something along the, those lines. And of course, this would be a very xenophobic way of approaching things. There also seems to be some level of influence from the idea of Cold Wars and espionage here, which again isn't particularly fair. As Yuante Huang points out in Chinese Whispers, published in Verge Studies in Global Asians from spring 2015, the term became popular mid-20th century and other Cold War-influenced and unnecessarily nationalistic names for the game include Russian Scandal, Russian Gossip, and Russian Telephone. Now, interestingly, the author also points to a pair of thought experiments linked or possibly linked to the telephone game uh, that, that I think are probably worth mentioning here. One stems from American scientist Warren Weaver, who lived uh, 1894 through 1978, who apparently in a 1947 letter to MIT's Norbert uh, Weiner commented on a translation problem and communication problem, writing, quote, it is very tempting to say that a book written in Chinese is simply a book written in English, which was coded into the Chinese code. Of course, this is not exactly how it works. Uh, as, you know, we discussed uh, linguistic differences on the show before and translations. Um, but uh, I think that's part of what uh, Weaver was getting at here. Meaning there's not sort of a universal meaning key where all languages can just be endlessly coded in and out of each other, that a language, a message in a language brings its own peculiarities and any translation is always an approximation. Yeah. And I think even, uh, this is perhaps more uh, visible to people today with access to various online translation tools. Like you don't have to toy around with those much to realize that you lose something. And in fact, 
it, not unrelated to the telephone game. I remember pretty early on when these translation tools began to become available and in, in some, for some language translations, one thing you could do is you could take a phrase, like say, I don't know, a line from Shakespeare, uh, translate it into, say, Spanish or German, and then translate it back into English. Now, do you get your perfect um, um, example back again? Does it give you exactly what you put in? No, you end up losing something in the translation and retranslation, and you can have some sort of telephone game-esque fun that way. Whenever online translation first became a thing, I don't know if that was Babblefish or Babble.com or uh, whatever it was, we thought it was absolutely hilarious to run Metallica lyrics through about (laughs) 10 layers of translation and what came out was solid. How does that still hold up, you think, or have uh, the translation tools improved or changed over time? I don't know. I was actually just trying to do it now and something wouldn't work. And I mean, it was like it was too close in the end. Hmm. Maybe there's some AI detection of like, oh, it looks like you're trying to translate Metallica lyrics. Let's shape that a little bit closer to the original. <laughs> All right. Now, another example that this uh, author brings up uh, is that is this idea that um, was presented by philosopher John Cyril, born in 1932, um, the concept of the Chinese room. Uh, some of you may be familiar with this. Uh, the Chinese room in this thought experiment is a cell that contains, uh, quote, baskets of Chinese characters and a rule book correlating those symbols to symbols on Chinese texts, texts that are going to be passed to a single human occupant of the room, like by, you know, sliding them under the door. The single human occupant of this Chinese room does not know Chinese, but uh, again, these texts are passed under the door to them. They take these texts, they compare the symbols to the rule book, and then they get the response symbols out to build a response, a string of responses that are then passed back under the door. I would say with the Chinese room thought experiment, the the particular use of Chinese as a language as, is not important to the experiment. It could be any language unknown to the person in the room. Right, right. And so Huang sums it up by saying, quote, although his Chinese interlocutors outside the room consider these strings to be clever responses to their inquiries, the prisoner actually has no idea of the meaning of the texts he has produced. The scenario proves, Cyril argued, that a machine cannot think, just as the prisoner does not know the meaning of the Chinese texts. So it's meant uh, as a means of refuting the idea of, say, strong AI that um, reproduces human thought. Now, we could spend a whole series of episodes debating the validity of the the Chinese room thought experiment. Uh, and in fact, it has come up on the show before. Uh, but but yeah, basically, I think Searle is, is trying to assert that there's something that goes on when a human is thinking that we call understanding, meaning when a human manipulates symbols, they have some deeper uh, recognition of what those symbols mean that has validity to the whole of existence. Whereas in this experiment, this is what he considered a, a machine that can, you know, like a like a chat GPT type machine, one that can manipulate text and then spit out text that seems to make sense. He says, ultimately, it is a machine manipulating symbols without actually understanding them. There's a ton of back and forth between philosophers about like what it actually means to understand uh, whether a human could truly be said to understand whether what we're doing is fundamentally different or not. Again, though, for our purposes, Chinese language is not really part of the whole scenario and really won't be something we're, we're dwelling on moving forward. But if you are interested in uh, the topic of, of Chinese language and technology, uh, there's, a, there's a great book that came out several years ago, uh, The Chinese Typewriter, A History by Thomas S. Mullaney. We had him on the show. 
interviewed him about the book and the topic. So go back and find that in the archives if, uh, if that's what you're interested in. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and the last star on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. But uh, coming back to the telephone game, uh, a.k.a. Chinese Whispers, um, yeah, I'm going to keep calling it the telephone game. Uh, I have seen some sources online that steer people away from referring to it as something like, Chinese whispers or Russian gossip or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I've only ever known it as uh, the telephone game. I, I think that's what basically everybody in the in the U.S. at least calls it. A more accurate name, though, especially for children, might be goofy whispers, I think. 
Now, I think you could argue about what is actually learned or revealed from the version of the game we described at the beginning by having, you know, kids sit in a circle and whisper a message in each other's ears around the chain. But variations on the telephone game have actually been used in scientific research, in uh, in psychology studies, going back uh, over 100 years at this point, and have been very influential. So there are variations on telephone game experiments that have sometimes been called serial reproduction experiments or transmission chain uh, experiments. Mm -hmm. Serial reproduction is uh, very influential in the history of psychology for understanding a number of different phenomena, communication, cultural transmission, and memory. Uh, Serial reproduction experiments were famously crucial to the work of the British psychologist Frederick Charles Bartlett, often written as F.C. Bartlett, who was a professor at uh, Cambridge University. But Bartlett discussed serial reproduction experiments in his very important 1932 book, Remembering a Study in Experimental and Social Psychology, that was all about phenomena of memory. So serial reproduction was one of two major techniques that Bartlett studied. The other was called repeated reproduction. And the difference was like this. Repeated reproduction, you would ask a single person to try to remember an original piece of information and reproduce it over and over at different intervals of time. So, Rob, I might give you a story like a like a text to read that's a folk tale or a newspaper article or a description of an event or a passage from a book, anything. I'd ask you to read it several times, and then I would ask you to uh, write it down from memory five minutes later or an hour later, a week later, a year later, two years later, and see how well you could remember it, but also maybe most importantly, what are the patterns of changes that you observe when you do this with lots of people? That to me is a very interesting question. Are there consistent differences? What tends to change when a memory fades over time? Serial reproduction is a very similar experiment, except you add in the telephone game element. So one person's attempt to remember the the text becomes the next person's study material, their text to memorize, and then their attempt to reproduce it becomes the next person's study material. And you do this on down the chain with lots of different people, with lots of different types of text to see what sorts of trends emerge. Now, the goal of the repeated reproduction experiments was to sort of study how people remember the same event over time. You know, how well do people remember something that happened to them a year ago or several years ago uh, or remember something they read from a year ago? and what tends to change. But the goal of the serial reproduction study, the telephone game version, was to study the effects of the social transmission of information through word of mouth in culture or through uh, memory of written sources in culture. Yeah, this is fascinating. On one hand, I can't help but think like with, with repeated reproduction, you know, we, we kind of engage in, in, all, in this all the time. Different people trying to remember what happened in a movie. We can always go back and look at the movie. And in many cases, we will go back and look at the movie and see what actually happened. Or a book, trying to remember what happened in the book. There's still that primary source. Um, but uh, it makes me think of um, Fahrenheit 451 towards the end of that, the Ray Bradbury book, where mm-hmm. um, a, a book about books being banned, books being burnt, and the books then having to be committed to memory and then passed on as an oral tradition again, which means that you open it up to serial reproduction 
uh, um, errors, um, which I always found kind of fascinating. Like on one level, I remember as a young reader of the book, I was like, oh no, well, they can't possibly truly memorize, I don't know, Moby Dick and then pass it on. Like how, like this seems like this is such a feat of memory. And then realizing, well, they, they couldn't possibly keep it all intact. Something would change. And this would be a process of these, uh, of, of literature becoming oral tradition again within these people that are keeping the books alive until, you know, some sort of regime change can happen and they can all be put back on paper again. Well, it's interesting because I think in that kind of scenario, what these experiments tend to show is that the the original form of the story would be lost. There would be radical mm-hmm. changes introduced through attempts to serially reproduce, especially a long text um, uh, o- over time. But the people reproducing it would introduce their own literary flourishes to it. So mm-hmm. it would essentially become no longer the original work of Herman Melville, but sort of the uh, a product of a serial reproduction culture. So it would have elements of the original story in it, but it would have elements added in along the way, some of which get reproduced pretty faithfully and some of which fade away. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about this in terms of remakes of, of movies, because sometimes it feels more like a telephone game. And like, what does John Carpenter's The Thing have to do with The Thing from Another World versus the mm. short story it was based on? Other times, things uh, feel more like serial reproduction, where someone's like, OK, this new adaptation is going back to the original source material and not the most recent film or TV adaptation of the material. Though, interestingly, there are very different uh, mechanisms in play there because it is assumed that a big issue with the loss of fidelity in serial reproduction is memory, right? People Mm -hmm. failing to remember certain elements of the story and that failure of memory causes them to either just omit something or to substitute something else. In the case of remakes, it's, you know, it's choices made for some reason. Presumably, right. they can always consult the original source. So there, all the changes are, you know, and his head was made of doo-doo or whatever. It's deliberate <laughs> changes uh, because the person thought it would be more entertaining this way or more marketable or whatever. True, true. Though it's very interesting how one of the things, we'll get into this in a bit, one of the things revealed in Bartlett's research is that some changes that we would interpret as not just failures of memory, but as real editorial changes to a story do creep in, even when people are just faithfully trying to reproduce it. We unconsciously make editorial changes to narratives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's fascinating to to break into that and see what changes are more likely to be made, why we make them, etc. Now, I thought it might be good to illustrate how much actually changes in these serial reproduction experiments by reading the text of uh, one original text given to the subjects in Bartlett's experiments and one example of what that text looked like after 10 uh, transmission, uh, after 10 links in the transmission chain. So uh, this is probably the most famous example. It is a folktale called The War of the Ghosts. This uh, is something that Bartlett presents as a Native American folktale. Now, I was trying to find out more about uh, the origins of this folktale, like specifically what group of people it came from and and, uh, when it was first put down in writing and so forth. I was not able to turn up that information, so I, I, I can't vouch for how authentic this is to the actual tradition, the folk tradition that this uh, written version of the story is based on. But you can say at least that this uh, written version is the original version for the purpose of the experiment. Okay. 
So I'm going to read this uh, original written interpretation of the story. It's called The War of the Ghosts. One night, two young men from Egulok went down to the river to hunt seals, and while they were there, it became foggy and calm. Then they heard war cries, and they thought, maybe this is a war party. They escaped to the shore and hid behind a log. Now canoes came up, and they heard the noise of paddles, and saw one canoe coming up to them. There were five men in the canoe, and they said, What do you think? We wish to take you along. We are going up the river to make war on the people. One of the young men said, I have no arrows. Arrows are in the canoe, they said. I will not go along. I might be killed. My relatives do not know where I have gone, but you, he said, turning to the other, may go with them. So one of the young men went, but the other returned home. And the warriors went on up the river to a town on the other side of Kalama. The people came down to the water, and they began to fight, and many were killed. But presently the young man heard one of the warriors say, Quick, let us go home. That Indian has been hit. Now he thought, Oh, they are ghosts. He did not feel sick, but they said he had been shot. So the canoes went back to Egulok, and the young man went ashore to his house and made a fire. And he told everybody and said, Behold, I accompanied the ghosts, and we went to fight. Many of our fellows were killed, and many of those who attacked us were killed. They said I was hit, and I did not feel sick. He told it all, and then he became quiet. When the sun rose, he fell down. Something black came out of his mouth. His face became contorted. The people jumped up and cried. He was dead. Mm. Very I, haunting I guess, story, yeah. I think. A little bit of a uh, ghost arrow, um, <laughs> uh, elf arrow action in there, too, kind of. Okay, so Bartlett's method in the serial reproduction experiments was he would begin with a text like that. Uh, he would uh, let the subject read the text in full twice over at their own pace. And then 15 to 30 minutes later, the subject was asked to reproduce the passage from memory. Would you like to hear what the War of the Ghosts looked like in one of these transmission experiments 10 steps down the chain? Oh, let's hear it. The War of the Ghosts. Two Indians were out fishing for seals in the Bay of Manpapan when along came five other Indians in a war canoe. They were going fighting. Come with us, said the five to the two, and fight. I cannot come, was the answer of the one, for I have an old mother at home who is dependent upon me. The other also said he could not come because he had no arms. That is no difficulty, the others replied, for we have plenty in the canoe with us. So he got into the canoe and went with them. In a fight soon afterwards, this Indian received a mortal wound. Finding that his hour was come, he cried out that he was about to die. Nonsense, said one of the others. You will not die. But he did. Absolutely terrible. Just ruined. totally ruins it, yes. Like, all the great stuff in the original one is gone. Like, obviously, the stuff with the contorted face and the black um, bile... Uh, leaking out of the mouth uh, like that's gone and that was great but also the um, relationship between the two warriors that was was pretty interesting in the original you know the idea that that one kind of like passes the buck to the other and it's like well i can't yes. go but you can uh, all that is gone that's the interesting character drama the atmosphere at the beginning is lost the elements mm -hmm. that it became that it was foggy and calm when the when the boats arrived bartlett himself points out that 
the story has changed so, so much. And it's it's in fact, it's changed so much. It's easy to miss lots of the ways that it has changed. It is drastically shorter. Basically, all the supernatural elements have been removed and it's just left as a material story of of violent conflict with like none of the none of the ghosts. It's still called the War of the Ghosts, but there are no ghosts in it. Yeah. Pretty much all of the cultural conventions in the story that would have been less familiar to the uh, subjects at Cambridge trying to reproduce this story, they've been removed or replaced with more familiar cultural elements. Like, for example, just the the use of the word fishing for seals at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And instead of referring to one's relatives back at home, it's just, oh, me old mom. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And Bartlett points out three major patterns that have happened to the story. Number one, uh, a series of omissions. Details are just continually at each stage being left out. Uh, second is, he, he says, quote, by the provision of links between one part of the story and another and of reasons for some of the occurrences, uh, that is to say, by continued rationalization. So there were things in this story that uh, might not have made sense to the subject, might well have made perfect sense to the intended original audience. But because of cultural unfamiliarity, the subject didn't really understand why somebody was doing something. So they added in a, uh, a rationalization for it. And then the third thing is the, uh, the transformation of minor detail, which can snowball into major changes over serial reproductions. Yeah, that's fascinating. And again, it's interesting to, to keep in mind that, of course, the, the oral transmission of stories was, a, was the, 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 the original way that we passed these things on. Um, you know, sometimes you might have some sort of a, um, a text to refer back to or some sort of, um, you know, iconography or or even like geographic features or what have you uh, that that help inform the story. But but otherwise, it's like it's kind of a miracle that any creative story remained good over time. Right. That it would just uh, I guess that that speaks to the role of a dedicated like storytelling class within mm-hmm. a given culture. But even in those cases, I think you could not assume that the story would remain the same. It would mm-hmm. be a tradition, and you might have a core of a story that is sort of stable over time. But like storytellers are, in a way, also story writers. When they reperform, uh, when we, when anybody reperforms a story lo- learned orally, they you know, lose some original detail and supply new details of their own. So they become a creative participant in the story tradition. Yeah. And if your your culture storyteller happens to be Michael Bay, then you do, suddenly there's all these explosions that weren't there in the previous version. It takes on a certain character. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in the chapter on serial reproduction in Bartlett's book, he gives a bunch of different examples, and he shows actually each reproduction along the chain. So you can follow it and see what changes are introduced at each stage. It does this for a number of different types of texts, several different folk tales, um, different experiments with the same folk tale, different uh, like newspaper articles or passages from books, like passages from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, or just like stories from the newspaper about uh, tennis matches, He all different mm -hmm. kinds of texts. And he says, in every case, for every uh, genre of information he has tried, with the exception of what he calls cumulative stories, and I think this might be stories where, like, each little element that happens is logically dependent on the thing that happened before. Hmm. And he, he says, quote, the final result after comparatively few reproductions would hardly ever be connected with the original by any person who had no access to some intermediate versions. There is little doubt that with the ordinary free handling of material, which is characteristic of daily life, much more elaboration commonly takes place, though it is perhaps difficult to imagine that very much more startling changes could occur. So he's saying that conditions of the experiment are probably producing higher fidelity transmission than you would expect in everyday life. And even in this setting, the changes are drastic. Yeah, I mean, it, it brings me back to various um, folktale traditions and legends and myths that we've discussed in the past, you know, where there's sometimes a question of, well, 
Does the myth in this culture, does this have an actual connection to this similar myth in another culture or were, are they both independent creations? Um, and, uh, you know, given the, the amount of drift that would, that would take place uh, if, if something were transmitted to this other culture, uh, potentially, I mean, you can you can see where you could go either way. Like, uh, like the, the it would just be so so much would be lost in it becoming a part of this other culture. Yes, and this actually connects to a, a broader idea that Bartlett has. Maybe we can get into this later or in the next episode on about the idea of schema. His proposal was that in order to remember something, you don't just remember the event itself. You encode it with the help of what he calls a, a schema or schemata, basically an existing body of knowledge about the world and about your culture that uh, that can sort of like uh, be a shorthand for elements of the thing you're trying to remember. And thus, things that fit with your available schema are easier to remember and things that don't just kind of either get transformed to fit your schema or get forgotten. And this would account for for one thing, uh, people's tendency to make changes, especially to culturally unfamiliar elements from a folk tale from a different culture. Mm. But anyway, at the end of this chapter, uh, uh, Bartlett was able to document a fairly consistent uh, array of changes that he thought were most often introduced through serialized retelling. So I thought it'd be really interesting to look at, like, what are the changes that happen most often with this form of the telephone game, where you're going, you're reading a text, and then you're trying to reproduce it from memory, and then you go on down the line. What kind of changes show up the most? So first of all, he says, proper names and titles of pieces. Uh, he says, consistent across the different examples, some of the most unstable details were proper names and titles. And this was true for every genre of material with every group of subjects tested. Um, now, when it comes to proper names, the examples in the reproductions printed in the chapter are numerous. I just, uh, I dug through to try to find some particular examples. One of them, comes from a paragraph that was used for an experiment about uh, about evolutionary theory. And the name is a name to which an argument about evolutionary theory is attributed. The name is Mr. Gulick. And the name Mr. Gulick is transformed into Mr. Garlic by the second reproduction. And it stays that way for 10 more steps down the chain. Now, I think it's interesting that Gulick quickly changes to Garlic, but the Garlic name doesn't change nearly so easily. It sticks for many more transmissions. I wonder if that's because Gulick would have been a relatively unfamiliar name to the subjects. And of course, so would Garlic as a name, except Garlic as a name for a scientist is weirdly evocative of Garlic the food, so it kind of sticks in the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just in general, so some of the weirder names are the ones that stick with you. Uh, but I would say my intuition would be more likely if it's a word in your language, especially an unusual word in your language, as opposed to like just a name that, that isn't like a noun in your language, but is also not one that's very common to you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's another example. Uh, it's a story about a lawn tennis match uh, where the name Tilden transforms into Felden and the name Brooks transforms into Bowden. And then a player named Captain Wilding becomes Captain Wild and then his name just completely disappears from retellings. And this last pattern reflects a... Uh, that sometimes names don't just change, they completely disappear. They go down the drain into anonymity. 
So you might start with a story about a man named John Agar, who might then become a man named Garfield, and then he might just become a man. And Bartlett thinks that it's understandable that proper names should change through retelling of a story from memory because he says, quote, their significance and application are local and vary from group to group. And this sort of makes sense to me. Like, it usually makes very little difference in a story what the person's name is, unless that name is connected to a known identity. So it'd be kind of weird if the name of somebody you knew personally changed, or if the name of a famous person whose reputation you were familiar with changed. But since the characters in these stories are usually not known to the subject, their names are easily changed or forgotten completely. Right, right. So if you were given a, a story about uh, Yvonne, and uh, you, you didn't know that Yvonne is, a, is an important character in, in a, a body of folklore, you know, particularly like Russian folklore, you could easily switch it out for, for Ivan or anything else, and it would lose it. But if you, had, if you felt the weight of that, if you had a cultural attachment to a particular name, it would be a different story. Ah, it's this character. I know him. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just a name. Now, more interesting to Bartlett is the finding that uh, usually the titles of stories are dropped fairly quickly from reproductions. Uh, so, like, the title just disappears. It is left off. Now, these titles can be the conventional names of folktales or the headlines of newspaper articles. It doesn't really seem to matter. People very often just simply drop them. And this might seem kind of strange since titles, including headlines, often provide the important element of setting for the story, the context you need in order to understand what the story is about or what the point of it is. You know, part of me wants to resist this idea and be like, well, how could you forget the title? Because the title's like the thing that you would, like, how do you request it? How do you sort of catalog it? But then I think to various examples that, that came up in some, some sources I was looking at, you know, looking at um, like urban legends, um, mm -hmm. you know, where you're not really perhaps attaching any kind of like cultural value to it, or really, it's not the idea that this story is like important, uh, you know, culturally or historically, but there's some other reason it's being transmitted. And in doing so, yeah, these are stories that don't necessarily have a name or any kind of uh, concrete name. Like, for example, like the, uh, the, the old story about the, uh, you know, oh, and then when he pulled up, the hook was, was hanging from the door of the the car, you know, mm. you know, some of those kind of stories like those don't necessarily have names. They, uh, I mean, they, I'm sure you can find a handful of names for them, but there's going to probably be a fair amount of drift. I guess the exception to that would be a case where an urban legend has, where it's so centered around a particular character or monster or something like, mm -hmm. um, if it were, say, I don't know, Slenderman, like the, the name is evocative. It brings to mind a certain thing. And, uh, and no matter what else is changing, you're probably going to hold on to that. And it's not going to be like skinny dude or something, you know, based on his comments about the role of titles and how they're easily forgotten, even though they are very important contextual information that colors our understanding of a story or an article. Uh, Bartlett writes, quote, with this general consideration in mind, it would be a matter of some interest to study experimentally the psychological effects of newspaper headlines. Mm. It looks as if the merely descriptive headline is the most ineffective and as if the biased headline may produce a profound effect, though, or perhaps even because it itself is speedily forgotten. Uh, so if I understand him right here, I think 
the insight he's claiming is that, you know, the title or headline is able to make an impression, a strong impression that colors your understanding of the story or the article, whatever it is you're reading. But because the title or the headline is by nature forgettable, you may sort of forget the kind of work that it did on you, that it did on coloring your understanding of a story. So you could write a perfectly accurate newspaper story, slap a misleading headline on it, and the headline would strongly influence what people remember as the gist of the story, even if they don't actually remember the headline itself. So they wouldn't remember that the headline did that to them. Yeah, and of course, this is a, a great example, too, in that, uh, you know, traditionally, the, the, the headline itself is, the, is a choice made by the editor as opposed to the writer of the article. Yeah. And uh, especially nowadays, you'll sometimes see an, um, a particular article or story that comes out, and you'll observe its title changing online. Yeah. Either it may change on the same page that it has been initially published, or it may change with republication on other websites. Um, so, yeah, great, great example. I can't tell you how often I've seen people arguing about uh, an article on the Internet. And what it turns out they're really arguing about is the title of the article, which is not mm -hmm. something the writer even picked. Right, right. Yeah, very often the sort of almost the cliche is that the editor comes along and slaps the title onto the article that is just going to be the most it's going to you know, lead to the most engagement. It's got to got to hook people and potentially make them read at least part of the article. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. 
It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, but anyway, we dwelled on that one a bit, the, the idea of proper names and titles. Those, uh, there, there is a tendency over time in this type of serial reproduction experiment for those things to go by the wayside to change or disappear. Second thing uh, Bartlett says is a general trend in this sort of experiment the bias toward the concrete. He says concrete physical details in drama are more likely to be preserved in their original form than abstract content. And Bartlett writes that with one notable exception, quote, every general opinion, every argument, every piece of reasoning and every deduction is speedily transformed and then omitted. Now, that makes sense, and I think we can see some elements of that in the examples he gives in his chapter. But he says there's one exception to the bias for concrete detail and against the uh, preservation or, uh, or expansion of abstract or mental detail. And Bartlett says the, ex- the exception here is the tendency of folktales to have a moral. Mm. Now, a quick caveat on terminology. I think it can be confusing in this context sometimes to talk about a moral of the story because, of course, the moral of a story is not always moral in character, meaning it's not always about doing what's good or right. Sometimes it's just teaching you something about the way the world allegedly works or showing a way to be clever. And sometimes these lessons are not particularly moral at all. Uh, So when we say moral, you can think of it as the lesson of the story, the part at the end where you might say the point of this story is to show you that. Hmm. So while a lot of non-concrete detail in narratives tends to change and disappear over time, this was not so much the case with the moral of the story. In fact, I thought this was very interesting. Bartlett says that when you do serial reproduction experiments with a folktale that does not specify a moral in its original form, people will often add one during attempts to retell the story. People actually subconsciously add on a moral of the story, thinking it was already part of what they just read. Hmm, that's fascinating. Next trend, he says, is loss of individual characteristics. So uh, there is across the board a loss of what Bartlett calls the individualizing features of stories. Quote, The descriptive passages lose most of the peculiarities of style and matter that they may possess, and the arguments tend to be reduced to a bald expression of conventional opinion. So, uh, in general, it seems to me that even if a passage manages to maintain the gist of a story, uh, a story told or an argument expressed— Through the chain of transmission, these stories tend to lose their soul. They become stripped of nuances and stylistic details, the details that really make them what they are. And uh, so Bartlett says that carefully articulated, sophisticated expressions of opinion or argument tend to get translated into loosely related conventional views expressed in cliches. Mm. And I think we've probably all had that experience of like, 
trying to express something very carefully in a very clear and particular way, only to have somebody sort of translate it back to us as a very blunt or conventional statement that does not capture what we think we were trying to say. Yep, yep. Or if someone's summarizing a moment in a in a work, in a film or a book, you know, sometimes if you you, you have to you you find yourself explaining it and then you're like, well, you just need to see it. Uh, I yeah. did a terrible job. But this leads to what I thought was actually a somewhat poignant comment uh, that seems as much about the nature of stories as it does about the process of transmission between readers and, and rewriters in this type of experiment. Bartlett says, quote, Nobody seeing a single reproduction could predict the remarkable effect which the cumulative loss of small outstanding detail may have. Yet the effect is continuous from version to version, following constant drifts of change from beginning to end. Uh, and I don't know, that kind of broke my heart a little bit thinking about how it, it elucidates the imperceptible uh, but very real ways that a single like word choice or detail actually strongly affects how uh, everything from a story to a newspaper article is perceived it's it, it's kind of one of the tragic things about writing is that like you make a little change here and a little change there and each of them you could argue is insignificant in itself but it actually does change the effect of the piece overall true true yeah yeah and then of course over time, that's like outside of that, even if you, you, you have this story and nobody's changed it, it's sealed uh, so it can continue to live on. Like the languages and experiences around that story are going to change. And, uh, and, and ultimately you have this thing that then nobody can relate to without a dictionary or a whole bunch of uh, notes. <laughs> so I guess if it's a really good one, if it's a really good story, like it's, it's sticking around because something in there is still speaking. Something in there is still alive and hasn't uh, died away with changes in language and traditions and metaphors and so forth. Now, one thing Bartlett points out here uh, on this detail about the stripping of individualizing characteristics, um, he says this is likely a limitation of his experiments because, again, this is not a perfect reproduction of the way stories spread by word of mouth in the real world. This is a sort of approximation of it with some differences. And one different thing, he says, is that in, in the experimental setting where you're reading a text somebody else wrote and then trying to reproduce it in writing from memory, there's very little incentive to elaborate. In other words, to breathe new individual characteristics into the text when you retell it. So Bartlett, I think, implies that in the real world, you would probably still have this shearing off of individual characteristics from the original story, but people along the chain would also be more likely to end up adding new individual characteristics back in. So some of the original soul of the piece of writing or the story might be lost, but also each teller breathes new soul in based on audience demand and what they think would be interesting, entertaining, uh, relevant to the listener and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And again, yeah, it speaks to the, the importance of dedicated and successful storytellers throughout uh, human history. You know, it's not just you need people that can can keep this chain going and can keep uh, spicing it up as other spices are lost. OK, the fourth trend he notices abbreviations. In short, all genres of serial reproduction tend to become more and more abbreviated over time. Some of the serial reproductions he includes start off taking up more than half the page, and by the tenth reproduction, they are just three lines. It, it gets massively pared down. 
In my judgment, just looking at the examples, this seems to be especially the case with more abstract writing as opposed to concrete narratives. Like, uh, it seems like the folk tales get pared down less than, say, the writing about evolutionary theory or uh, th- or thoughts about travel. Yeah, yeah, get it down to a, a tight ten. Now, here's something I found really interesting in this little section. Many people will probably have noticed how stories can seem to become more exaggerated when they spread by word of mouth. This is the classic, you know, uh, oh, what's in there like a there's like a musical where this happens or something. You know, it starts it starts off as one story and then as it goes through the rumors, you know, goes each each step down the rumor chain, the the claim gets more and more grandiose. Oh, yeah. Well, wasn't there an old Saturday? Well, not even an old Saturday Night Live, but there was a Saturday Night Live sketch about this with tall tales about some coworker or somebody that someone knew. And they just keep getting more and more outlandish, uh, this kind of escalation. So this is usually chalked up to a desire to make the story more impressive and exciting to the audience by each person telling it. That obviously is a very real factor. But contrary to this mechanism, Bartlett notices uh, another way that exaggeration can creep in over successive retellings. He says, quote, when a generality is expressed with saving clauses, the saving clauses tend to disappear even if the generality is retained. And that really clicked for me. I was like, oh, I bet that is true. Yeah. So your story might start by saying the psychic mutant crabs were so powerful that nothing could stop them except maybe dynamite or uh, Clint Eastwood in a jet fighter. Okay. Next time, the psychic mutant crabs were so powerful that nothing could stop them. So it keeps the generality and it forgets to add in the exceptions offered. Hmm. And then the next time, it's the mutant crabs literally could not be stopped no matter what. It's just rephrasing the generality, but in a way that makes it sound more definitive. Hmm. Well, I mean, that makes it sound like everything creeps toward cosmic horror <laughs> or, and, uh, or something to that effect. So sometimes the generality itself might be lost, but it might be preserved while the, the nuance to it or the exceptions to it, the, they just fall away. Hmm. Okay, two more things, the trends and changes from these experiments. One is what Bartlett called the rationalization process, something that was common when people repeated folk tales, especially from cultures that they weren't as familiar with, was the Mm -hmm. introduction of explanatory rationalizations for events described that didn't make sense to them. And again, that's didn't make sense to them as a reader. It might might have made perfect sense to a person who uh, who would have been more familiar with this folktale and familiar with the cultural context. That makes sense. Makes me think back to our example earlier, the changing of my relatives don't won't know what has happened to me, which is a statement that feels like it might connect to like a different culture's idea of the importance of our, our ancestors or something. And it gets transformed into, oh, my mom is old and I have to look after her. Exactly. I think that is one case of the the change toward what the uh, reader would view as a rationalization. Yeah. So just as one more example in these experiments, one of these experiments has a, uh, a folk story that is reportedly from the Congo about a boy who wants to hide from his father. So he transforms himself into a kernel of a peanut, which is subsequently eaten by a fowl, which is eaten by a bush cat, which is eaten by a dog, which is eaten by a python. And then at the end of the story, The father finds the python caught in his fish trap. He opens it up, finds the dog, opens the dog. He goes down the line of animals until he finds the boy disguised as a peanut, opens up the nut, and there's the boy. 
Now, in the original text used for this experiment, there is no explicitly given reason why the boy wanted to hide. It just says, a son, uh, a son said to his father, I will hide and you will not be able to find me. And so Bartlett reproduces all of the stages of transmission in one of these experiments with this folktale. And by the 13th transmission, the story begins by saying that the boy is trying to hide because he is afraid of his father. A rationalization that was not there to begin with, and in fact violates what I took to be the implied playfulness of the original first line, that the boy wants to hide from his father because, oh, and the, the story is called A Boy Who Tried to Outwit His Father. Mm. But we, we simply didn't think that the, 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 bo the boy's hiding was earned in the text. We needed a stronger <laughs> rationalization for him hiding. So uh, by the 17th transmission, there was a further rationalization. A boy who had been up to some mischief wanted to hide from his father, whose anger he feared. So he wants to hide because he's afraid of his father, because he had committed some mischief. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting also that I think these rationalizing details are also the sorts of non-concrete mental phenomena that would be liable to be stripped out by subsequent retelling. So these things could probably kind of wash in and then wash out again. Yeah, I mean, you can just imagine the various judgment calls that are being made here subconsciously. You know, like, I don't, I don't like the idea that the, 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 the father is the antagonist here. Let's make the, what if the boy were a little rowdy and, uh, <laughs> he, and, and he's, he's bringing mischief into the scenario? Let's go in that direction. Interesting paradox, while many subjects have an urge to add what they obviously believe to be rationalizing details to a story when a character's actions don't make sense to them, or when the connection between two described events is unclear to them, people tend to do exactly the opposite with, quote, descriptive and argumentative passages, which uh, over subsequent retellings tend to, uh, in, in Bartlett's words, degenerate into a few apparently disconnected sentences. <laughs> and that is definitely true of, like, the attempts to reproduce, like, the, the argument about biology or something. Yeah. <laughs> So in the end, uh, Bartlett says, you know, at least in his experiments with these types of transmission, uh, it, it should be emphasized that while accurate transmission is not impossible, it is clearly not the norm, especially for many kinds of information and for most of the verbal information tested. The degree of change across several generations of honest attempts at faithful transmission is radical, even shocking. Bartlett writes, quote, Epithets are changed into their opposites. Incidents and events are transposed. Names and numbers rarely survive intact for more than a few reproductions. Opinions and conclusions are reversed. Nearly every possible variation seems as if it can take place, even in a relatively short series. At the same time, the subjects may be very well satisfied with their efforts, believing themselves to have passed on all important features with little or no change and merely perhaps to have omitted unessential matters. You know, he also says that people are probably being more careful to reproduce as accurately as possible in this university experiment setting than they would be if they were just, you know, living their lives, repeating something they read in the newspaper or heard from a friend, where there's less expectation of scrutiny on their uh, of their efforts for accuracy and more incentive to alter a story to make it more entertaining, more impressive, more illustrative of a point one wants to get across or whatever else. Yeah. Thinking of your audience, for example, you know, retelling the story to um, uh, to a, to a loved one, you know, what what kind of changes might you might you be making in order to uh, 
make sure they enjoy it the most. This is something we'll get into more in the next episode as well. So finally, Bartlett says, quote, it looks as if what is said to be reproduced is far more generally than is commonly admitted, really a construction serving to justify whatever impression may have been left by the original. It is this impression, rarely defined with much exactitude, which most readily persists. Hmm. So I think that's a very interesting starting point, but uh, but there's obviously a lot more to say about this subject, about uh, serial reproduction of, of different forms, transmission chains, and and the telephone game. So we will be continuing to look at this at uh, at least one more part in this series. Maybe we'll go on beyond that. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I found this fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Again, it gets it 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 it, it bleeds into so many aspects of um, of our culture, and it's going to be interesting to also take into account technological changes uh, when we continue to discuss this in the next episode. All right, we'll close it out here. But just a reminder to everyone that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do Listener Mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form Monster Factor Artifact episode. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks, as always, to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.